You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ah, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Well, this comes right after Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, his hometown, which is pretty sobering and also comforting, I think, at the same time. It's sobering because Jesus was rejected in his hometown, and he was the most loving human being the world has ever known. And so Jesus being rejected means that Jim is going to be rejected, means that you, if you're going to live for Christ, will have moments where you are going to be rejected. It's really unavoidable. And um, it's also comforting, though, to know that when we're praying, we have a God that knows what we're going through. Um, The world is largely starting to reject Christ, largely rejecting the source of truth being uh, the Word of God, being God himself. God has become just a different Whatever you decide God is, you decide your own truth. And um, we need to, as Christians, understand what's happening in the secular world when they say this is truth. Find your own truth, discover your truth, live your truth, those kinds of claims. We need to understand what they're really saying. And I'm going to try and help us with that a little bit today. So he's rejected in Nazareth, goes to this place, Capernaum. It's on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee about 700 feet below sea level. And it was, um, a, it was a small town, but it was on a big trade route. And so um, Rome set up a tax collection station there. Um, it was Jesus. Matthew calls it Jesus's own city, meaning Jesus lived there for a time in his ministry. And uh, it doesn't appear any place outside the gospels, but it says, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were, and the word is astonished. But the root word to this word astonished is like the word for a bomb. It is something that starts here and emanates this way, or something is expelled out from something else. In other words, I read this and I go, they are blown away at the teaching of Jesus that he is doing. They are reading this, and it is just hitting them like a ton of bricks. They're going, wow. They are astonished at his teaching. And then why? It says, for, because... His word possessed authority. 
Now, if you know anything about that culture, uh, they would not stand up and claim authority. The only authority they would claim is they would say, it is written. This is what the, now we'd call it the Old Testament, but those books, this is what they said. So this is true and we're safe because we know God has said this. And then they would quote other rabbis. And then there were a couple little rabbis that might, I don't know if they were little, sorry, a couple rabbis that would get maybe just a little bit off. And all of a sudden they start here and then it starts to do this. And so you start to see streams of Judaism in that day. And it kind of, they got so different that then eventually it sort of stopped and people just started quoting the rabbis and quoting the scriptures and and doing that. But there was almost like a fear from what I read, excuse me, in that day to just say, I declare my own truth and I know what's right. You go, oh, hang on. The Bible says this, the Old Testament says this. Um, This rabbi says this, this great scholar, thinker, Pharisee, whatever has said this as well. There was a a saying the rabbis had, or one one rabbi put it out and others grabbed it. I will say nothing of my own which has not yet been said. They're looking back and saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. And Jesus stands up and says, I say to you this. And they're going, wow, he teaches with authority. He teaches as though he is God. So let me try and be clear about this and give us a little application for today. Um, What a pastor or preacher or Bible study teacher, something like that, what we might say and what God says in the scriptures are on different levels. I know know you know that, that um, when I'm reading the word of God, these are God's words, and then I'm doing my best as a fallen human being to try and explain God's words to all of us or many of you teach Bible studies, or even in conversations. We'll have moments where we're sharing and giving an explanation of this. But we, never should, we should never forget that what the Bible says and what people say are on different levels. And here's something for us. Um, when she was reading the scripture, there can be a temptation to go, uh-huh, uh-huh, get through that. Okay, Jim, now explain it. Put it, put it in layman's terms. Like, what does that actually mean? And can I just tell you, when when someone's up here reading the word of God, I understand why the temptation is to go, that's nice, Jim put it in 2021 terms, because if I were to go pick up the Bible and read the book of Romans, or here's a book where Tim Keller is going to explain Romans to you, he's going to write it in a way that immediately connects with us. And the Bible, on the other hand, we might go, oh, I get what he's saying. I I would have said it differently, right? Can I just encourage you that these are God's words, and so as people are reading it, Dial in, listen, don't, don't hesitate at all to go, I don't know if I'm gonna understand, I'll just wait till someone explains it. Dive in and just read these words of God for you. So that's what's happening in the day is everybody's going, it is written, but I say, or excuse me, Jesus is saying it is written, but I tell you this, and his words have authority. Now, in a real cruel twist of irony, that's also what our world is doing today if you think about it. I know what is written. I know what has been said a couple thousand years ago. I know that God has spoken, but I say to you this. You, you catch that in the world? We, have, we basically have this idea of 330 million little gods running around declaring their own truth in our nation. And it's bad for a whole host of reasons. Let me give you a three. Um, <clears throat> One of the reasons why it's dangerous to say, everybody just pick up your own truth is this. When we talk about whatever truth we've just invented, we usually go about as deep as a bumper sticker or a hashtag, and that's about it. When Jesus gets up to speak, he's got the weight of the Old Testament behind it, and he's the fulfillment of it. When I speak, like if I'm talking and I go, oh good, here's a verse, and I take it to mean this, and you go, I have 12 others that say something different, you're right and I'm wrong. 
Okay, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And so when Christians speak, when we speak, one of the things you can be doing is thinking about, did Jim just say something that doesn't jive with the rest of the Bible? So I can't just get up here and give a bumper sticker thing. There's, there's other things to test it against. This is a consistent message of God. But when somebody stands up and just throws out words and they start getting in the culture, they're accountable for that little word. And then people take that word and then make it mean a bunch of things. I'll give you three examples in my day and see if you can see why these are so important. One of the words is tolerance. I heard that all the time when I was growing up, which really is to say we should tolerate each other is about as low a bar as you can possibly set in interpersonal relationships, okay? But I, I was sitting with a pastor friend of mine and there was a, a lady that came in and she, this is not here, this is another place. Lady came in and she started asking, she, she wanted to say that she didn't think that church was very tolerant, and she had a kid in the ministry. I, just, I didn't say a word the whole time. I just sat there. This other pastor was talking to her and she said, well, I don't think you're very tolerant. And he said, what do you mean? And he asked it very nicely. She was very pleasant too. And the idea was, are you saying we, you don't like our position on something and so you deem it to be intolerant? Or did our pastor, when he shared, did he say it in a way that came across really grody? And he said, so for example, do you think that we should say, and then he just, and then he said something and I thought, that's funny because that's right out of the Bible. And she goes, yes, like that. I don't think we need to be saying that. And he kind of guided her back. He wouldn't, it sounds like he was being snotty. He wasn't. He kind of guided her back to say, this is what the Bible says. Are you saying we shouldn't talk about this or was it just how we said it? And she said, I just don't think we should talk about those things. And so her definition of tolerance was don't talk about the things I don't like. So literally, this is what happened in that meeting. She left at some point. We prayed together. It was a nice meeting. She left. She said, I just don't think I can be here. And we said, you're welcome here anytime. And I said, if I can do anything for you, for your kids, just let us know. So just to recap, a lady came in and said, you are not very tolerant of others. And then she said, I don't think I can be here anymore. And we said, you're welcome here anytime. Did you catch that? Tolerance has, sounds really nice, but it has changed. How about this one? What about love? Love is love is love. No, it's not. Now, I don't think when Lin-Manuel Miranda, whoever, I think he said it first, when he said it, I don't think that he is saying, like if he were here and I were to go, do you think it's the same, my love for my wife versus uh, my love for another woman that I commit adultery with? I think he'd probably go, oh, no, no, I'm, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. Like, I think he probably would have some limits, but you just say love and the world takes it, redefines it, and does whatever they want with it. Or what about, what about judgment? Not at this church, but I have sat with somebody before who said, um, you Christians, I just see you as so judgmental, and that is just wrong. Did you catch that? And I, I was dumbfounded and kind of opened my, no, nothing, didn't, didn't see a thing. You Christians are judgmental and that's just wrong. What, what's happened? We, there's, there's just a word or a phrase that gets put out. There's no context to it. There's no accountability to it. And these are big words, tolerance, love, and judgment. Those are big, important words. The world's not qualified to give their truth on these matters. The other thing I'd say is uh, there's a big lack of logic. This is number two. 
Lack of logic. We are so impacted by emotions and by circumstances. When I was growing up, there was an elementary school. I kid you not, I do not know the name of the elementary school because we had a nickname for it. You would drive by and it was falling over and it was in like terrible shape. And so we didn't know the name. We actually referred to it as the haunted elementary that's what we, it looked like a haunted house. So we're driving by and we, like we would talk in middle school, be like, oh, I went to Lively for elementary. Where'd you go? Oh, I went to Haunted Elementary. Oh, Haunted Elementary. Because we didn't have, we, I still to this day don't remember the name. And this elementary school was in terrible shape and they kept saying, we need to get it and we need to level it and we need to build it back up. And everybody in the world would go, yes, of course you need to if you saw this thing. They had looked at buying other land and starting a new one, all that, and it didn't work. The problem was to do that um, parents were going to be very inconvenienced for about a year because there was going to be a whole school year that they weren't going to be able to go to that school. And I happened to be, maybe it was just so I could give you this illustration. I happened to be in a classroom uh, with a mom and then this other teacher, and I was in the back doing something. This is, I was in middle school at this point. And a mom came in and was complaining to the teacher about, can you believe they want to take whatever it is, Haunted Elementary, they want to tear it down and they want to build it back up. And I was listening to what she was saying. She had triplets and she was saying, and my family moved right by this. It was a nice neighborhood. We moved right there so my kids could go there and walk across the street. And now I'm going to have to go to a different school and on and on and on. And I, wasn't, I didn't really think much of it and I just sort of kept going. And then... Perhaps by God's providence, um, a few years later, I saw this woman talking to somebody else and it was the exact same topic. And I remember her saying something to the effect of, it was talking about the school and should we tear it down and start from scratch? And I remember her saying something to the effect of, I see it now. I see why we should do that. You know what changed? Her kids weren't in elementary school anymore. So what happened? Right in the midst of it, we are so controlled by our emotions, we're so controlled by our circumstances, it is almost impossible to declare our own truth and figure out truth from error in that moment if we don't have something to go back to. You have a, um, if you're a Christian, at some point what happened is you and I realized that hell is real and we deserve the judgment of God, but he has done incredible work in Jesus Christ to bring us to saving relationship with him so we can be with him for eternity somehow that truth, we have staked our entire eternity on that truth. And then all of a sudden, what happens when you have a neighbor and that neighbor is a really, really great person and they die apart from Christ? That emotion that we feel, the compassion that we might feel, all of a sudden can start to make us question all the truth that we've literally staked our life on because one little circumstance has changed. Um, a way you could think to apply this is um, you might think about topics that you hope I don't preach on, the questions you hope another Christian won't actually ask you or the parts of the Bible that you might avoid. Or the way we talk about it a lot is to look inside your clenched fist as to what you think you're hiding from God. God gets it all. There's a third reason, by the way, that um, it, it's silly to say everybody kind of come up with your own stuff. We can be moved at times by very persuasive arguments. We can sit with people, have very good discussions, and I think that happens some. But a lot of times, if you take away a central truth that we all agree on, the only influence I can have on you is by power or by shame. Is that happening in our world today? This is, my, um, this is one of my new favorite cartoons. Can you put that up? All right, so here's what it says. If you can't see it, it says deeply held beliefs and you see the um, orange, the yellow, and then you see the stripey section, all right? And the one person says, oh, you believe this? You're a terrible person. 
okay? And they start to insult them. Um, so you see the person really believes that different thing by just a little bit. Now what happens is someone keeps yelling at them is slide number two here. Oh, just gets a little more set in his position. And then eventually what happens if the person keeps yelling at them is this. Now all of a sudden they've moved deep into their position. If you look at the person who's just listening in, now he's starting to go, maybe that's not such a bad idea. Leave that up for me if you would. I, listen, here's what's happening. When we're sitting in the middle on something, like say you're genuinely, as a parent, trying to say, I can't decide if I should public school my kid or homeschool my kid, all right? And you're genu genuinely looking for answers and guidance. If you're sitting in the middle, and I don't remember, public school, I think, over here, they come over and start going, I can't believe you as a Christian would, would take your kids out of public school. You've got to get them in the schools. And all of a sudden, what starts to happen is you do one of two things. You either just go, I'm getting hurt and guilted and shamed, and so I'll just I'll get over here under this safe umbrella so that they don't shame me anymore. Or some of us do the opposite, which is like this. I'm not gonna think rationally about it. I'm just saying, you're yelling at me. I was really asking a question. Now you're going, you better get them in public school. I'm gonna take a step this way. And it's just like human nature. I'm either gonna move this way or I'm going to move this way based on the shame and guilt that I feel and how I want to respond to it. Now, the people that move over here are being moved by shame and guilt, and it's very obvious that they are. But the people over here that are responding and moving the other way are actually doing the exact same thing. They're giving somebody else outside permission to move their lives on very important matters. Do not give the shame police authority over your life either way. And Christians, we need to be able to sit down when people are going, I'm genuinely wondering about the vaccine. I'm genuinely wondering about a mask. I'm genuinely wondering about, uh, about which school to send my kid to. We've got to be a place where we can sit with people and listen and not push and not guilt. Listen, Jesus is the one that has that authority. He also has, you'll see, supernatural authority. So this is the first miracle in Luke's gospel. And um, Jesus is gonna heal somebody on the Sabbath. So this is like double no-no. He's showing people up and then it's on the Sabbath. And here's what it says. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had, who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have, you, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? So what's happening is there's a, this man is demon-possessed and he's saying, have you come to destroy us? Meaning, if you're gonna do something to me, his thought was, you also have to kill the man that I'm possessing. So he's saying, if, if you're gonna get me, you're gonna have to get him as well. Is that what you've decided to do? And I told Stephanie, I told her other scripture reader as well, when it says, ha, you could read it like, ha, like, meh, good luck, Jesus. Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Like they're mocking, but they're not. They're scared. The word ha, in English, just I'd flip the letters. They, they go ha like that when they see Jesus. And here's how I know that. It says, ah, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons recognize who Jesus is and they're scared because he has authority over anything supernatural. They know, he starts out, they say Jesus of Nazareth, but they're going, this is more than Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. In Greek, it's five words. He says, shut up and get out. 
And when the demon had thrown him, the man, in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. This rebuke of Jesus sent the demon out. When when you look at the scriptures and you look at the rebuke of God, the power of the word of God, we're talking about a God that there was nothing, and it says he spoke the world into existence by the power of his words. We're talking about a God in, um, in Job 26, 11. Job can't fathom the majesty of God, and he says that the rebuke of God, even the very pillars of heaven, tremble. He's teaching, uh, God's teaching Israel to fear him in Isaiah 50. He says, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make a rivers a, the rivers a desert. The fish stink for their lack of water and die of thirst. And do you know how he pulled back the Red Sea? It tells us in Psalm 106, it says, he rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. Verse 36, they were all amazed, everybody around, and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out and reports about him went to every place in the surrounding region. He's got the authority of truth. He's got supernatural authority. And then he has healing or physical authority as well. Look at this. He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. By the way, this is a doctor writing this. And interestingly, it's the only gospel that mentions she has a high fever. It gives a technical medical term to say she has a high fever. And really what he's trying to communicate is she is on death's door. They are interceding on her behalf. It says they appealed to him on her behalf. Picture this, this matriarch of this Jewish home just laying there like this. And I picture them just dabbing her like this, trying to get her fever down. And the doctor hears about it, Dr. Luke, and he writes it down and they're begging Jesus, do something. And you know, she's down here, just let her start turning this way. And maybe in several days or months or even years, she'll get back to close to normal. What happens? Jesus, it says in verse 39, stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. This is not, let's get back on the bell curve and try and run this way with it. This is, she is down here and Jesus speaks a word and the fever's out of there. She's back to normal, waking up and going, what do you guys want to eat? She's a hostess in her own home. Now, when the sun was setting, all who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them. He didn't have to. Most people believe he's giving a personal touch to them. And he healed them. And demons came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. All right, let me pause and answer one question, which is if Jesus has power over health, why does anybody ever get sick? Or maybe it's not anybody. Maybe it's, why did this happen to this person that I love? Why did this happen to me? And there's not a short answer to it by any means, but I do want to say this. The fact that we live in a world where there is sickness, where there is uh, death, where there is crying should also make us long for the time when all those things will be gone. The pain that we feel here when we feel when we're sick, when others get sick, um, we know as Christians, we know that one day we'll be in a place when there'll be no more tears, no more sickness, no more death. And Jesus Christ will reign. Think about what the demons said. Have you come to destroy us? Meaning you can destroy us. They say you're the Holy One of God. They say you're the Son of God. 
They say you're the Christ. And it makes me wonder if in general, do demons understand more about Jesus and who he is than some Christians do? Did you catch what they just said? Have you come to destroy us? You're the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. You are the Christ. Like they're saying all the right things about Jesus and who he is. The problem is they are terrified of him and they should be terrified of him. He is good and they are evil. James chapter two says it like this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What he's saying is, this is James writing, and James is saying um, that you don't just have faith in the sense of, yeah, I believe there's a God, I believe he's rescued me, I believe in the gospel, and then go live your life. The belief that we have should be a transformative belief that is backed up by our works. Our works are not what put us in good standing with God. Our works are evidence that we have saving faith already. That's what he's saying. So here's what he says next. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Good luck. And he says, I will show you my faith by my works. I am gonna show you what I believe and then it says, you believe that God is one, which is theologically true. He is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. When we're talking about good works following our faith, James here says, you know what? The demons believe the things about God. They just don't follow it with saving faith. They don't, they don't follow it demonstrating their faith through good works. Christians, this is what we're supposed to do. We show our faith by what we do. We show our faith by what we do. And I've had times in my life where I have had that, I've had the cognitive, I know God's up there, I know who he is, I know I'll be with him forever. And I had nothing in my life to back it up. And this is one of the things that hit me. I thought, oh, the demons do that. They know all the th same things about God that I do. We show our faith by what we do. Let me close with this. It's more and more difficult to actually trust God when the world seems louder and louder and comes across as so sure of itself. But just remember that the truth that's being proclaimed is based on emotions and circumstances. It's not near as logical as you think or as they would like to think it is. The vague mantras, the bumper stickers that are given that are trying to pass as sound doctrine, don't buy it. Don't let guilt and shame move you. Your guilt and shame is taken by Jesus Christ on the cross and nailed there forever. Don't let people move you by guilt and shame. Don't give them that authority and power over you. Ask Christ to show you what is hardest for you to relinquish to him. Look in your clenched fist and know the freedom of having your fingers pulled back one by one and watch that be removed as you surrender to him. Martin Luther says this, Faith is an empty, open hand stretched out to God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Let's pray.